Come on, you know you wanted to. It made you feel like it, and you were feeling it. Ephesians chapter one, we're beginning a brand new study today, book of Ephesians. You wanna keep going to the book of Leviticus with us, 4.30, Sunday afternoons, over in the court, verse by verse. We're gonna go the distance in the book of Leviticus Sunday afternoons this year. We're starting a brand new study, Ephesians this morning. I'm so excited about it. The year is about 61 AD. The place is Rome. The Apostle Paul awakens from a fitful night's sleep. He's got chains on his hands, chains on his feet, for he's under house arrest. He's a prisoner of the Roman Empire for nothing more than having preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He looks outside, he sees the changing of the guard. He realizes he has but a little time left to live. He will soon die a martyr's death, but there's so much left to say, so much unfinished business. He's planted churches all over the Roman world in churches in places like Colossae in the city of Thessalonica and Galatia, even right here in the city of Rome, begins to think to a, a very special place and a very special church that he loved so deeply. This church is Ephesus and this city is Ephesus and his mind begins to drift back to the last time he saw them. And Acts chapter 20 and verse 36 tells us that he began to weep as he looked at this church 10 years earlier, this beloved place and this beloved people and he says to them, you will see my face no more. And he begins to think about them and he knows that false teachers will come in. He's warned them about false teachers that will come to try to divide them and disrupt them as ravenous wolves. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he begins to pick up a pen and papyrus paper. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he begins to pen this letter that we're now about to study called the letter to the Ephesians. He begins to think back to the first time he was in this amazing city, this port city. As they got off the ship of the Mediterranean, he began to walk down the street that is still there to this day. You can go to Ephesus, you can tour to this day. You can walk in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. You can see the things that Paul would have seen as he walks down this famous street. It was then known as the Arcadian Way. We might say today, it was like Times, you know, Fifth Avenue. I mean, it was like Times Square of New York City, and it was 70 feet wide and 1,735 feet long, over five football fields in length, and there were people on each side. It's busy, it's bustling. The city is throbbing and thriving with life. There are merchants and markets on either side of the Arcadian Way. As he steps off the ship, he begins making his way down the street into the heart of the city. Dogs are barking, children are laughing, and babies are crying, and he can hear the sound of merchants bartering as the products and the produce are being taken down the street as this port city where all types of merchandise from all over the Roman Empire would come as Ephesus is on a very, very crucial north-south highway of Asia Minor and it would intersect the east-west valley and from this east-west valley it would be a place where there would be produce and products shipped all around the Roman Empire in the 
the scent of raw meat and exotic spices from faraway lands fill the air. And he looks up as he's walking down the Arcadian Way. We might say today like New York City. And he's in awe of what he's seeing. And he looks up and he sees this stadium at the end of the street in the heart of the city. He sees a stadium. It's still there to this day. In Acts 19, he doesn't know it yet, but he's going to be in this stadium after three years of ministry. So many people in this pagan city are turning to Jesus that they're no longer worshiping the goddess Diana or Artemis. And they gather in this 25,000 seat stadium and the silversmiths are causing the city to riot because people are no longer buying these little silver idols that they would make to the goddess of Diana. And in that very stadium, Paul would one day be. At some point he looks down and he sees this marble street. And on this marble street are billboards. And he looks down and undoubtedly he sees this right here in this marble of the street of Ephesus. It's still there. And what this is, is a billboard for a brothel. Now you can't see it, but right about here, there is a hole about the size of a quarter and it's about a half inch deep. And what that is, is a billboard for a brothel. And what it says is that if you're old enough that your feet are large enough to fill this footprint and you have enough Roman coin to fill this hole, then follow these footsteps to the brothel. And if you followed those footsteps, it would take you here. It would take you to a bathroom, a public bathroom, where men would stop and do their business before going into the brothel right next to it. And this was Ephesus at its most noble hour. I will promise you the brothels in Ephesus were very, very busy, for this is the place that pilgrims and pagans would come from all over the Roman world, because this was the city of the Temple of Diana, the Temple of Artemis, and she is the goddess of sexuality, she is the goddess of fertility, and she had a temple that was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, 239 feet wide, 418 feet deep, almost four stories high. It is supported by 117 columns, six feet thick. And pilgrims and pagans from all over the Roman world will come to her temple to worship this multi-breasted goddess of sexuality and fertility. And they would go into that temple where there were hundreds of pagan priests and priestesses where they would each perform sexually perverse ritualistic acts of prostitution. And this was the Ephesian religion. And in the middle of this pagan center of prosperity materially, in the middle of this pagan center and this pagan religion, this de facto capital and this political power base of Asia Minor, the Roman governor lived here in the city. The apostle Paul would plant this little church at Ephesus. He's now about to write a letter in the closing moments of his life. Understand, the church at Ephesus had been planted by Paul to be a launching had for Christianity throughout the entire Roman world. Now he planted on his second missionary journey sometime around 53 AD. He's now writing this letter about 61 AD. 
And he plants it very strategically in this place because obviously Ephesus, 300,000 people live there. Fourth largest city of the entire Roman world. It's a port city. And many from all over the Roman world come here and some stay there. And from here in Ephesus, they would reach all of Asia Minor, what is today modern day Turkey. Did you know Acts 19 tells us that from this church at Ephesus, all living in Asia Minor, minor would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in the space of two years. This would be a church that would completely overtake this region of the world. All those living ones today, modern day Turkey, would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ from this church at Ephesus in just two years time. It was a move of God that was unstoppable, unimaginable, quite frankly, unexplainable. And it was from this church at Ephesus that God would do that. Because this church would be a launching pad. You've heard me say before, the church isn't meant to be a lounging pad. It's meant to be a launching pad. And they would launch the gospel from this very place in Ephesus, very strategic city of the ancient world. Now, I want you to remember, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we're about to study. It is an open letter meant to be read by all generations of Christians. This letter isn't written only and solely to the Ephesians. This was a circular letter. The early church received it as an open letter to the Ephesians. So they began to circulate it around all the churches of early Christianity because it's meant to be read by every Christian from every generation for our edification to lay a good, strong doctrinal foundation. And so that's why Paul is now writing this letter specifically. So as we get going, we start studying this letter. Just I want you to look at how it's organized. You start studying any book in the Bible, you begin asking some basic questions. First of all, how is this book organized? How does the author kind of organize his thoughts? And when you look at Ephesians, it's written very logically, all right? So the first three chapters, check this out. The first three chapters, the Apostle Paul lays a theological foundation, then the last three chapters, he gives us the practical application. Now, it would be very tempting just to skip to the last three chapters where you have a lot of the practical application and just skip the first three chapters where he lays the theological foundation. But we're not going to do that. And I'll tell you why we're not going to do that. Because here's the reality. If all we are when we come to church is a self-help seminar and a little bit of a pep rally, then I'll promise it's not going to last till Monday morning. See, God wants to take you deeper scripturally so you can grow to maturity spiritually. And the reason a lot of us have never grown to spiritual maturity because we have a shallow, superficial understanding scripturally. Here's the reality. You can't grow up in your walk with God until you grow deeper in your knowledge of the Word of God. And so Paul knows this. That's why he lays first a doctrinal foundation, and then he tacks on in the end the practical application. So when we get to the last three chapters, it's going to be awesome. We're going to talk about, for example, marriage and how it ought to make a difference in the way we view marriage, in the way we have success in our marriage, how to be healthy and happy and holy in our marriage. That's Ephesians chapter 5. As Paul lays a theological dissertation on marriage and then a practical application on marriage. And then, check this out, he talks about parenting and child rearing in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. And so you got a practical application on marriage and child rearing and family. And then he does a little thing on employer-employee relationships and how to be a good employer, how to be a good employee as a follower of Jesus. And then he gets to what I think is the crowning jewel of the book, Ephesians chapter 6. He says these words, stand therefore with your loins girt about with truth and take on the helmet of salvation and be ready to wield the sword of the Spirit and always 
have up the shield of faith. He talks about our weaponry as followers of Jesus Christ. When we get to Ephesians 6, I'm going to release my second book. Remember my first book, Defeating the Enemy? That was more or less an intel on the enemy strategy. Well, the second book is going to be a study of our weaponry, how to practically wage warfare spiritually. Because Paul wants you to know, listen, this world is at war, but you got weapons and you can win. All right, but listen carefully. Before we get to any of that, Paul wants to lay a theological foundation in your life, the first three chapters. And I'm going to tell you something. Conventional wisdom in modern church life says, don't spend too much time on doctrine. Don't spend too much time on theology. Because people think doctrine and theology is boring. All right, let me just say it. Listen, there is no part of the Bible that is boring. Unfortunately, they're just boring people that teach the Bible. But the Bible isn't boring, because God's not boring, okay? They're just boring people. So I'm just trying to tell you up front, if I ever bore you, I apologize. I really do. I'm sorry. But it's not the Bible's fault. You understand that, right? See, here's what I know for sure. If you're not growing deeper theologically and you're understanding scripturally, you can't grow to maturity. That's why we do unconventional things around here, like teach verse by verse through the book of Leviticus, now, you want to take that further? You know where we're going to be, 4.30 Sunday afternoons. Verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. Because this can't just be a self-help seminar. The world is full of self-help, and it ain't no help. We need God's help. We need to understand God. Now, the problem is this. There was a time where people would come to church to learn about God, but people's motivation is different. We don't come to church to learn about God. We like coming to church to learn about ourselves. Pastor Phil, tell me about me. Help me, heal me, bless me, right? Now here's the deal, this is what I want you to see. The more you learn about God and put God in his proper place, the more you learn about yourself and put yourself in your proper place. See, that's the key. If the more you put God and understand who he is, the more you understand you and understand who you are. That is why Paul first lays a theological foundation before he gets to the practical application. Now, what's amazing is Paul, he just throws us into the deep end right off from like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. He doesn't let us just weigh in slowly and kind of get our feet wet first. He just throws us into the deep end of the pool. I mean, hold your nose, because we're going deep. We're diving in deep. I mean, right away from chapter one. This is amazing. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Look at what I'm talking about. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, look at this phrase, in Christ. Paul is giving us a concept, introducing an idea here that nobody would ever heard of before. The idea that as Christians, not just is Jesus in us, but we are in him. And so you see this phrase over and over again in the book of Ephesians. We are in Christ, we are in him. And this is the first time this concept has ever been introduced. He's introducing it now to the letter to the Ephesians. We are in Christ, we are in him. Now, if we are in him, what that means is we're no longer in our sin See, everything has now changed because we are in Christ. Yes, we're in the flesh geographically and practically, but he already sees us in Christ spiritually. That is our true identity, and that is the believer's victory. 
Now, we're going to learn how to walk that out experientially. That's what he's going to teach us how to do. Now, he goes on. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now that's just the first six verses of chapter one. We're already in the deep end. I mean, we're already talking about some of those controversial and confusing doctrines of the Christian faith. I mean, in-house debates theologically, doctrines like election, what's it mean to be one of the chosen, predestination. Oh yeah, we're not going to talk about any of that this week. I'm just going to give you a little glimpse of what we're talking about next week. It's going to be fun. <laughs> I'm going to have to dig out my old bulletproof vest from my old cop days. I'm going to tell you, because I'm going to challenge what everybody here thinks. I'm going to talk about predestination, election. Well, what's it mean to be chosen before the foundation of the world? Like before this world was even here, God knew you, he saw you, and he chose you in Christ before any of this was ever here. I'm not going to tell you yet, but what I am going to tell you is we're not going to study a theological system for the definitions. We're going to go to the apostles' doctrine, and we're going to find out what's it mean to be predestined. What does it mean to be one of the elect, to be elected unto salvation? What's it mean to be one of the chosen, chosen before the foundation of the world? You see, we're in the deep in the pool already, aren't we? I mean, we're going deep. This is some heavy, heavy theology. This is stuff that people have debated in-house scripturally for over five centuries. And so we're going to try to bring a little clarity to it next week. But I want you to see Ephesians chapter 1, he sets forth the theme. We have been adopted as God's children. Now, what's amazing to me is we already know Jesus introduced this concept in John 3. You are born spiritually into God's family. Uh, he said, marvel not, I see you. you must be born again. The moment you place your faith in the Son of God, you are born then as a child of God. John 1 and verse 12, as many as received him, Jesus, to them gave him power to be called the children of God. So the moment you by faith place your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the Son of God, you are born spiritually as a child of God. But not only, Paul tells us now, have we been born into God's family, we've been adopted into God's family. It's a whole different concept. As the adopted children of God, what is the implication? Not going to tell you just yet, but this is what I'm going to tell you. Just chapter one, just chapter one alone, we're going to see the will of the Father, the work of the Son, and the witness of the Spirit, the great three in one, and how the Holy Trinity together works to affect the salvation for you and me eternally. The will of the Father, the work of the Son, the witness of the Spirit, that's just chapter one. We're going to see in chapter one our eternal security, our kingdom of authority, and we're going to see the ministry of the Trinity in our lives personally, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're not even out of chapter one yet. Isn't that exciting? Uh, you can see, you're going you're gonna to get, we're going deep, all right? I can't wait for next week, because we're talking predestination. Oh, yeah. If I could, I'd just fast forward, just fast, no, I can't do that. We're not going to skip today, Okay. So as you, begin, as you begin studying any book of the Bible, you start asking three questions. It begins with this. Who wrote it? Why did they write it? And to whom did they write it? All right? So let's answer those questions as we get going. Who wrote it? Why did they write it? 
and to whom did they write it? Last week we were in Peru, and that's why I wasn't here. Last week you heard from Heidi St. John. Does she do an awesome job or what? <laughs> Ministering to our moms. And uh, we were looking at these compassion centers, and here's Krista and I and uh, these kids, and I thought about this last week as I'm getting ready to preach this week about being adopted in God's family. And we're going around Peru, and we're looking at opportunities to plant a church and partner with a Peruvian pastor and sponsor some of these children. Guys, here's what I want you to know. I've been all over the world. I've seen lots and lots of poverty. Only one place have ever seen more poverty than what I saw last week in Peru, and that was South Sudan. Uh, many of you know what our goals are for our fearless campaign. We want to launch something in Blue Springs this year. We're going to be doing that by the end of the year. One of our other goals was to plant an international church somewhere. And so we're in Peru looking for an opportunity to plant a church internationally. We're going to partner with Compassion International, and they sponsor children. And what I love about what they're doing is they're also planting a church. And so we're going to partner with a Peruvian pastor. And I just want you to picture this with me. I want you to think about the implication. If you and I were to plant a church somewhere in Peru, partner with a Peruvian pastor in a church of like faith, with our vision, with our values, and then together we sponsor like a thousand kids from that one community, can you imagine the impact that could have and the trajectory of thousands of people's lives for eternity? Can you imagine? That'd be awesome. And then we like take trips there and we build a relationship with the people there and the church there and we go see the kids that we've sponsored there like once a year. And here's what I love about what they're doing. This is more than just sponsoring a kid so they get something to eat once a week. This is like very systematic discipleship. And so they're growing literally from the time they're born, if they're sponsored as an infant to the time they graduate high school, they're growing in their knowledge of the word of God. They're growing their walk with the son of God. But they're getting practical applications in terms of education, uh, you can see the opportunities. Amazing, isn't it? But here, here's what I thought about last week. As I'm going around, I, I wasn't prepared for what I saw. I had somehow pictured Peru being more advanced than it was. And we're doing these home visits, uh, ministering these moms and, and these kids. And guys, I'm telling you, like living in a barnyard. I mean, complete poverty. In some cases, no electricity, no running water. And I thought to myself, this is where God finds us. It is hard to understand living in this bubble of prosperity of American society, but you realize apart from Jesus, we are all bankrupt eternally. We're in a place of abject poverty spiritually, and this is where God finds us. But now, as adopted members of God's family, Romans 8, 17 says, we're children of God, and if children, then joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You see, everything has changed now that we're in him, and God no longer sees our sin. This is a young man I met while I was there. He's 16 years of age. His name is Pierre. And I was told his story. Whoever had sponsored him had dropped him. And I was like incensed by this. What do you mean somebody dropped him? Uh, and um, I've thought a lot about Pierre since I've been back, because this, this is a picture of us. Listen. What the world drops, God picks up. What the world throws away, God picks up and redeems. Here you have thousands of kids living in poverty. The world has forgotten about them. They're just numbers, no names. I want you to see, now listen carefully. God hasn't forgotten about anybody. 
And I want you to see in some capacity that's what it means to be adopted members of God's family. And if indeed we're adopted in God's family, then ought to change everything about how we live practically. And so this is why we're calling this series Gotcha. Like, I didn't know this. A lot of you know this. I have a lot of adoptive and foster care families in our church, and it's kind of a move of God taking place in the church right now with a lot of adoption and foster care going on. But I didn't realize this, but you know, gotcha, there's a gotcha day. The day you got your adopted daughter, the day you got your adopted son, that's the gotcha date. Let me ask you something. What's your gotcha date? Has there been a moment in your, fight, in your life that you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you were adopted into God's family? That's your gotcha date. That's the date that you became a member of God's family, adopted into God's family. I'm going to ask you that over and over again in this series. What is your gotcha date? I can still remember my gotcha date. The date God got me at six years of age. I remember the moment that I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I remember the moment I took upon him as my savior and I gave him all my sin. And there was a date that God got me. Let me ask you, what is the date that God got you? What's your gotcha date that you were adopted into his family? Because everything should have changed. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, before we get too far going, too far, too fast, I want us to back up and answer some of those questions. All right, so chapter one, verse one. You ready to do a little study, a little Bible study? Here we go. All right. Ephesians one and verse one. Who wrote the book of Ephesians? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. So, who wrote the book of Ephesians, class? Man, the Bible's hard to understand, isn't it? Now, only theologian can mess this up. There are actually theologians that kind of debate, well, did Paul really write it? That's just silly. Honestly, I'm going with Paul, all right? I'm staying put. So you got the Apostle Paul who's pinning now under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this letter to the Ephesian church. So Paul is the author. The author is the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I want to remind you something. We're not studying the word of Paul. We're studying the word of God. Because it was the apostles the Holy Spirit used to pen the written revelation ultimately to men about him. Now, I remind you that because a lot of people say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not a follower of Paul. I mean, it's kind of become popular in modern Christianity to pick and choose and kind of have a cut and paste theology. And I just want to remind you that Paul was called personally by Jesus as an apostle in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. So it is impossible to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not a follower of Paul. Because every single time we study a word in Ephesians, we're studying a word that came specifically from God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The title apostle means sent one. God sent the apostles to establish the foundation of the early church, right? Ephesians 2 and verse 20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Acts chapter 2 tells us the early church was studying the apostles' doctrine. And so God sent the apostles specifically to give us the written revelation about what it means now to be a Christian. Now, understand, not just him, he could be an apostle. It's really important you understand this because there are people alive today who walk around saying, I'm an apostle or they're an apostle. And I want you to see, just like in the early days, there were counterfeit apostles, false apostles, 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. 
Because there are people today who claim to be an apostle. Now, the problem with that is this. Acts chapter 1 gives us the very clear criteria for one to qualify to be an apostle. As they are replacing Judas, Judas betrayed Christ, commits suicide. Peter stands up and says, we need to replace Judas among the 12. He then gives in Acts 1 the criteria to be an apostle. It had to be somebody who was an eyewitness, literally, physically, of Jesus' life and ministry from the moment of his baptism through his resurrection and clear into his ascension. And if you did not personally witness Jesus at his baptism and his resurrection and even his ascension, you were not qualified to be an apostle, which is the which is reason why there are no living apostles today. Amen. Now, it's really important to understand that because there are people who claim today to be an apostle. There are churches who have apostles. And here's the problem with that, because to be an apostle means you have the authority to bring new revelation to Christ's body. All right, so this is why there will never be, for example, in the Bible, a book of Phil. Because <laughs> I'm not an apostle. If I ever stand up on a Sunday morning, I say, please open your Bible to the book of Phil. I do hereby give you permission to get out of your seat and run through those doors as fast as you can. Run. Man. All right, because something has gone wrong. <laughs> There's not going to be a book of Phil, I promise. Because see, I'm not an apostle. I'm a pastor, teacher. What does that mean? It means I take the written revelation of the apostles and I preach it to a new generation. But there's no new revelation. God brought that revelation through the apostles. Now here's the deal. Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. To say there are living apostles today would not only imply that somebody's actually old enough after 2,000 years to have actually seen him personally as an eyewitness, but it would also imply that God is still laying the foundation of the church after 2,000 years. So this is kind of a big deal to understand who was an apostle and how did one qualify. And that is why Paul could claim apostolic authority. Remember, he wasn't one of the original 12. So the Corinthians especially were always questioning his authority as an apostle. Well, you weren't one of the original 12, but check this out. He was a Pharisee living in Jerusalem at the time of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Pharisees witnessed Jesus just like the 12 witnessed Jesus. Undoubtedly, Paul was among the Pharisees that that day on the banks of the Jordan River as John the Baptist looked across and saw Jesus coming and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There was one named Saul that would later become Paul that was a witness of his baptism. There was one named Saul who would later become Paul that was a witness of the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And this Saul, who's now become the apostle Paul, is taking pen, giving us revelation about him. As an apostle. Now, listen, the apostles were arguably, Apostle Paul, I'm convinced, maybe arguably the most tenacious and determined soldier of the Lord who ever lived. A little bit about the author, the Apostle Paul. People ask sometimes, Phil, who's your heroes in the Bible? I'm gonna tell you right now, I got a lot of them, but Paul would be one of my heroes. You know why? Because Paul was tenacious for the gospel. I mean, I love this guy. Paul was like the Energizer Bunny, he just wouldn't stop. Just go on and on and on and on. One of my favorite stories of Paul, he's in the city of Derby, another city in Asia Minor, before he plants the city of Ephesus, this church, and uh, he's preaching the gospel. They drag him out of the city of Derby, and they stone him to the point of death. 
Now, most of us, if we survive, we would shake off the dust and we'd go look for another city to preach the gospel in, but not Paul. He revives, he shakes off the dust. He basically says, hey, I wasn't done preaching my sermon. He turns around, goes back into Derby, the very place that had recently dragged him out of the city and stoned him and said, I'm gonna finish my sermon. I ain't done preaching. You see why I love this guy? I mean, he's like a pit bull for Jesus. I mean, just uh, uh, he's just going to latch on and not let go. A pit bull will fight to the death. And you know what? That's what Paul did. He literally fought to the death. They had to separate his head from his body to stop him. We need more Christians like that, don't we? We need more people with a tenacious pit bull mentality for the gospel. Like, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give in. I'm going to advance the kingdom. That was the Apostle Paul. I love this guy, tenacious soldier. I know we live in an age of diplomacy. We live in an age of diplomacy where everybody wants a diplomat. No, understand, we live in a world cursed by sin, and that means we live in a world at war, and until the Prince of Peace returns, the world will not be at peace. It will be at war. That means we are called to warfare, not rest. And that is why the Apostle Paul would write in Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this age, spiritual wickedness in high places. That means every single day we are at war with demons. We wrestle with demons. We wrestle against an opposition whose king is Satan. And that's why he gives us the weaponry as his closing comments to this book. Now listen carefully, he goes on. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. So, who's the audience? Paul's writing it to the saints. Not the ones that live in New Orleans, those are the ain'ts. <laughs> He's writing it to other saints. Now what is a saint? Some of us have been taught poorly about what a saint is. A saint, according to scripture, means holy one or holy. The word saint means holy one, and biblically, check this out, every person who is a Christian is considered a saint. Now, a lot of people have been taught something different. Some of you were taught that to be a saint, you had to make certain qualifications. Uh, first of all, a saint had to be dead. Number two, to be a saint, you had to be dead a long time. And then, once you'd been dead and dead a long time, certain elite members of the church would convene a council, and they would get together, and they would kind of measure your life for how many good works you did, and they all agreed that your life merited sainthood. They would make you a saint. That is just not true. That's not what a saint is at all. You know how I know? I know a number of reasons. First of all, Paul is writing the letter of Ephesians to the saints, and he's not writing to a bunch of dead people. He's writing to a bunch of living people, living members of the church at Ephesus. You see, in the eyes of God, you're a saint if indeed you have given your faith, your faith to Jesus. You're, you're a saint in the eyes of God the moment you place your faith in him. I want you to understand, we don't pray to saints. Back on my police department days, I had buddies on the PD, and they would wear a little pennant around their neck, St. Michael's was their pendant, and they would tell me that um, St. Michael's is their protector, and they would pray to St. Michael for protection. Understand, nowhere in Scripture are you ever taught to pray to anybody but Jesus. 
1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no saint that's your intercessor. There's no saint that's your mediator. Jesus is your intercessor. Jesus is your mediator. He's the only way to God the Father. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through St. Michael. Huh? No, he said me. So understand who the saints are. The saints are not people who have been dead and dead a long time who did certain things and merited the, the title. No, he's talking about you and me. See, a saint is anybody who knows and loves Jesus. It's anyone who's put their faith in him, having been born again. I'm not saying you should, I'm saying you could. Don't call me Pastor Phil, call me Saint Philip. <laughs> Nobody's ever done that before. Yeah. Uh, we, we could. Well, I'm not saying you should. All right. I mean, you got St. Matt, St. Sarah, and, and they probably are. I know St. Phyllis is. I mean, you're a saint, sister. Kenny, you're a saint, man. You're a saint of a human being. You are. Listen carefully. I'm being kind of silly, but theologically, I want you to see I'm not. You're a saint in the eyes of God. You know why? As an adopted member of God's family, what's this mean now for your identity? As an adopted member of God's family, he no longer sees you as a sinner. He sees you as a saint. And what does that mean? It means the goal of the Christian life is learning to live experientially like the saint God says you are already. Think of what this would do for your marriage. If both you've if if you lived and loved like the saint God says you are, think of what it would do for your family if you lived and loved like the saint God says you are. Think of what this would do for your relationships if you lived and loved like the saint God says you are. You see, the goal is to live out practically, experientially like the saints God says you are already spiritually. And then He says, "I'm not just addressing this." To the saints, I'm addressing it to the faithful. What's it mean to be faithful? Listen, to be truly faithful is to be willing to follow Christ no matter the cost. That's what it means to be faithful. Let me ask you, can that be said of you? Are you faithful? See, God is faithful to us. The question is, will you be faithful to him too? You can trust God. The question is, can God trust you? So ask yourself, are you faithful? Are you faithful with your opportunity, faithful with your energy, faithful with all your ability, faithful with your money financially to invest in the things that will last for eternity? Or are you, instead of being a giver, you're just a tipper, you give God the rest instead of giving God your best? That's what's at stake. Now what we know about the church at Ephesus is they were faithful. They were faithful even unto death because Jesus 30 years later through the pen of the apostle John would write them personally a letter. And in Revelation chapter two, he addresses the Ephesian church first and he commends them for being a sacrificing church and a separated church and a sweating church and a serving church. I mean, they were probably going to downtown days in Ephesus and they were taking out the trash for the city. Now we already know they planted lots of other churches all around Asia Minor, probably launched a campus in this little sister city called Smyrna. 
You get it? I mean, there's so much about this church that should inspire us. And what we know is they were faithful. You know how I know? I was in Ephesus about 10 years ago. And I got to see some of what Paul saw and walked where Paul walked. Yes, I saw that footprint leading pagans to prostitutes. But then our guide stopped and showed us this, the ichthus symbol. Sometime after Paul had left, somebody reached down and in that marble scratched the ichthus, the fish. Ichthus is the Greek word for fish. And guess what? It became an early Christian symbol, an acronym. It means Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And some early Christian on the streets of Ephesus reached down put that in the rock, it's still there to this day. And you know what happened? The Temple of Diana, eventually it fell in disrepair. You know why? Because nobody was going there. Christianity began to radically alter Roman society. You know what? Eventually the gladiator games were ended because Christians believed in the sanctity of human life. Somebody asked this week how I feel about the Missouri legislator banning abortion for anybody past eight weeks of conception. Do you really have to ask? Do you really have to wonder? Hey, if the church is not gonna stand for life, who's going to? See, the church has always stood for life from the early moments of Christianity, regardless of your political affiliation. It is not a political issue, it is a moral issue. And do you understand, it was the church that radically altered the moral values of a corrupt, depraved society. All of a sudden, men were married to one woman. They weren't having a mistress here and a mistress there because all of a sudden they were coming to Christ. All of a sudden, the slaves were being set free. And yes, women, were receiving rights and that is why Western civilization looks so differently even today than the rest of the world because the gospel makes men a new creation and it all began with a little church that radically altered not just the city but all of Roman society what do you think God could do with our church with you and me today if we were willing to be faithful no matter the cost. I'm convinced God could do again what he did then, amen? Jesus, I pray for every person in this place that your gracious hand, God, be upon us all, that you would be our help, our strength, that God, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that God, you would help us to become all that we ought to be in these late days of Christianity, to recapture some of that spirit of early Christianity in the first century. They were faithful even when it was costly. They were faithful even when it was not easy. And that, Lord, we would live to see revival and awakening right here in our own city. In Jesus' name, I pray. Give Jesus the glory with me. Would you praise him? Love y'all a whole bunch. Listen, there's some folks right here. They're here because they care about you. They love you. Some of you need to come this way. Need to know more what it means to know Jesus personally. What does that mean to know I'm an adopted member of God's family? Today can be the day of salvation. God bless you. God go with you. Love you a bunch.